Good evening, everyone. I wasn't expecting that. It's good, it's good to see everyone. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Nick Krause, pastor of Evergreen Community Church. I was an intern here for a year, and uh, it was just such a blessed time and a blessed experience to be with God's people here. And I feel a debt to this church, to all saints, and um, I would love for any opportunity I have to preach God's word and declare his truths uh, that I might just give you a small portion of what you guys have poured into me. What we read when we were reading Psalm 73 is we were seeing a man who was confused by suffering. Someone who walked out his doors and looked around him and asked himself, why do the wicked, why are they prospering? Why are they not suffering for all that they've done? Basically, he was asking himself the question, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? But when he worships God, he says, ah, it's because he loses his soul. He saw that. And Peter's going to come to the same conclusion by explicit teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you'll turn with me, I'm going to be in Mark chapter 8, and I'm going to start at verse 29, at the great confession of, Jesus, of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. And jumping in here at Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 29, we're at the great centerpiece of the gospel of Mark. And it's on this very verse, the confession of Peter, which acts like a door hinge in which the whole gospel turns and pivots. It centers really on two great confessions that Peter says that he is the Christ, and when the centurion soldier in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, says that Jesus is the Son of God. And where Jesus goes with this upon this confession is quite surprising. Let's start reading verse 29. And he asked them, the disciples, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man 
to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is God's holy, inerrant word. Let's pray the Lord's blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word that reveals Jesus Christ is the Christ and the Son of God. We thank you for this clear revelation, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to know who he is and all the implications that has for us. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Looking at Mark's gospel, it's striking to me to see that upon Peter's confession, Jesus does something pretty interesting. I would think that he would go on about, he says that, Peter says that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus informs him in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 16, verse 17, he says that the Father revealed this to you. Not, you you did not just come to this conclusion by some sort of logical sequence of events. What Peter's experiencing here is he's been seeing the wit, the miracles of Christ and how it testified to who he is, but he did not connect the dots. The Father revealed that to him. The lights are coming on for him. But his vision's not very bright yet. It's kind of a, a blur to him. He looks at the Lord Jesus Christ and he sees he is the King of Kings. But what does that mean? Jesus tells him not to tell anyone about him, and we see why. Immediately upon hearing that Jesus is the Christ, he pulls him aside. He rebukes Jesus after he kind of tells the implications of what it means that he is the Christ. Upon saying that confession, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And Peter reacts to this. He takes Jesus by the hand, he leads him away from the other disciples, and he rebukes him. And we also see in Matthew's account that when he pulls him aside, he says, Lord, may it never be for you. And Jesus, in turn, rebukes him. Now, at this point, I would think that Jesus would go on to explain his sufferings, why he came to die, that he came to die as a ransom for many, that he came to die to save sinners. But Mark's gospel shows a different angle of what Jesus saw when Peter rebuked him, what he was doing when he was rejecting the call to suffer. And Jesus, instead of focusing on himself at this point in time, 
there would be plenty of time for him to explain his unique suffering and his unique calling. But here he turns to his disciples and any would-be disciples to show them that the call to suffering is not actually just unique to him. That anyone who would follow after Christ is called to suffer. And I can actually sympathize a lot with Peter in his view here. We see it all the time with helicopter parents, don't we? Or snowplow parents. People who love their children, who don't want to see them suffer. You don't want to go see your children go through any pain, so you hope to, as a helicopter, patrol to make sure that they're not going to get into any trouble. Or if you're a snowplow parent, you jump in the action and you make sure you clear all the obstacles in their way to make sure they're not going to experience any suffering. And we can make fun of those parents, but don't you not want your children to suffer? Isn't evidence of your love for your children that you don't want to see them suffering? This is the kind of love that Peter has for the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a problem behind this. Jesus had already been very clear. He spoke plainly about his call to suffer. See, God's plan for Jesus Christ to suffer and die on the cross was not open to negotiation. This wasn't something that he could argue about and say, well, is there another way here? In fact, we had already seen one time where someone tried to get him off the path of suffering, and that was Satan. Matthew chapter 4, he says, just bend bend the knee to me, Jesus, and you don't have to go through this life of suffering. I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. You can avoid suffering. And you see, Jesus was called to suffer, that's really clear, but we are called to suffer as well, which shouldn't really be that surprising to us since we're following a Messiah, a king who himself was murdered and suffered and was rejected by men. Shouldn't be too big of a surprise to us, but I think it is. We are surprised by suffering. And the thing that this text does that is so helpful is it shows us that the call to suffer is ours, but it's worth it. The Lord Jesus Christ shows that the call of the Christian life is one of suffering, but it is absolutely worth it. Starting in verse 34, just to make sure that, you know, I'm not following any logical leaps here, that you can track with me. He turns, he makes this rebuke of Peter. He says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. With this, Jesus is making the call to suffer absolutely definitional to all followers of Christ. Jesus here, in marketing himself, is doing a pretty bad job. When I listen to drug commercials, 
Often, I see a lot of time spent on the benefits of a particular drug, able to do some miraculous solution to your problems. And then after it goes through all those solutions, it's funny how there's a little voice that's sped up about times three, going through all the side effects and all the problems that it could cause you. Jesus doesn't play those games. He says at the front... These are all the things that followers of Christ will experience. Sin does the exact opposite of what Jesus does. Jesus holds out the pain to make sure no one's going to be surprised by this. Count the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Sin, on the other hand, holds forth the pleasures, says that you can experience all the joys of this world and not have any guilt. It's like drugs. You can experience the pain. You can experience the euphoria, but you don't think about the addiction. You don't think about the pain that it might cause your family and the guilt that you have and being sold and enslaved to a particular sin. And I recently read uh, Screwtape Letters And C.S. Lewis actually pointed out something that was very helpful in thinking about this text. In the Screwtape Letters, he is, C.S. Lewis is kind of thinking about how would a demon think about this world. And he says this. He talks about how you can utilize the dangers of middle age if you are a demon. He says, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while it is really finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure in absorbing and agreeable work, build in him a sense of being really at home in the earth, which is just what we really want. That's a demon speaking, by the way. He's talking about the fact that prosperity knits our hearts to this earth and makes us feel that this is our home when it's not our home. This is the very sense of what he's calling his disciples to when he calls them. The ESV says, let him deny himself and let him take up his cross. But The sense in English kind of sounds like a permission, doesn't it? Here, Jesus Christ is not saying, oh yeah, you let them do these things if they're going to follow me. No, he says, must. It's a command here. He says, anyone who would follow me needs to, must, deny himself and take up his cross. That prediction that Jesus gave of his own death in verse 31. Notice it said that he's going to be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed. Jesus did not say how he was going to be killed. And only the disciples heard that Jesus was going to be killed. Imagine following in the crowd. Jesus had crowds around him all the time. It was really at any point he could just turn around and speak to a crowd of people at this point in his ministry, three years of performing miracles. 
Jesus turns to the crowd, and imagine listening to this. All of you, anyone who would be a follower of me, deny yourself and take up your cross. What is he asking them? This scene would feel like it's out of the blue. And that taking up your cross, the cross, picking up your cross, is something that would have been very familiar to the Jewish people. They've witnessed thousands of crucifixions done by the Roman soldiers, and it's been done before that by the Syrians and Babylonians, but it was really perfected by the Romans. Carrying your cross, what he's telling the crowds here is that as part of the punishment for crucifixion, the condemned prisoner took off the crossbeam and carried it out of the place to his place of execution. Once he finally arrived at his place of execution, there with outstretched arms, his hands would be either tied or nailed to the crossbeam. That crossbeam was then raised up on the already implanted stake and it was nailed to it. By telling these people that followers of him must take up their cross, he's telling them what it looks like to deny themselves. Deny yourself. Don't live for yourself. Don't live a self-centered life. Don't live a self-serving life. How? Particularly, even to the point of death. To follow Jesus is what he's telling his, any would-be followers is a death sentence. You've committed yourself on the road that is going to die. That's a pretty harsh world, word. And he doesn't even explain it here about why and the significance of it. And I'm very thankful that not every Christian dies. It's funny that always in those drug commercials with all those list of side effects, those side effects don't occur to everyone. I'm thankful for that. And Jesus, when he presents the possible side effects, he starts off with the hard-hitting things. But fortunately, we don't all die by a death like crucifixion. But this would be the fate of almost every single apostle. And the call to deny yourself in general can lead to the point, and we need to be as Christians at any point in time ready to give up our very lives. Like Polycarp, standing before the Colosseum, who said, as he was put in front of the Colosseum and said, renounce your God and I, don't, I won't kill you. Polycarp said, why would I deny my Lord who's been faithful to me for 86 years? It took 86 years, but death came for him. The call is for all disciples But the call to suffering that our text focuses on is really that it's worth it. That the call to suffering is worth it. Look at verse 35. For he says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. See here, 
whoever would save his life would be those who deny Jesus instead and seek safety. This is exactly what Peter's going to do. The next time this word deny is going to come up is going to be in chapter 14, verse 31, when Peter says, Lord, I'll never deny you. But in verse 72 of that same chapter, when Peter stands before just a little servant girl who asks him, do you know Jesus? And he says, no, I don't. Peter chooses to deny Jesus instead, seeking to save his life from not a really worthy adversary. He seeks to save his life. But Jesus says, whoever instead loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You see, the reality is, is that suffering is not a uniquely Christian experience. Suffering is for absolutely everyone in this world. world. The devil's marketing is a lie. There's no, gonna, there's no avoiding suffering. We might be able to mitigate it here and there, but all of our solutions are temporary. All of our cures will eventually fade away. This world is not our home. And while the devil might seek throughout our entire lives to have our hearts knit to this world in this present age, this is not where we belong. And he gives the promise that whoever would trade this life, who would ever lose this life for the sake of Jesus Christ and his good news, for the sake of his kingdom, will save it. You see, the first reason I think the cost of suffering for Jesus Christ is worth it is because it's a trade. It's a trade for this present life, for eternal life. We're making a distinct trade here. Jesus says anyone who decides to give up their life in order to follow me, they're not going to lose anything. They're going to gain eternal life. Jesus is using kind of a double entendre, I said that kind of weird, a double entendre in this text. The word life is the word for soul, spuche. That word there is the same word throughout this text, whether it's in verse 36 that he uses it for soul or life in verse 35. The point here is he's saying you give up your outer life, you will get inner life. You're not going to, even though you lose your life here in this present age, you're gaining eternal life. And I do appreciate that the ESV clarifies that, that this life that he's talking about is the soul. For he says in verse 36, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For whoever For what can a man give in return for his soul? See, this trade, the present life for eternal life, the reason why it's worth it is because eternal life is of such greater value. That's why it's a worthy trade. 
Ray Comfort has a pretty good illustration here. He's an evangelist out in California, and he likes to ask people, how much would you sell one of your eyes for? A million dollars? Two million? Now I think with inflation, we need to increase it to a billion dollars to make it a worthy trade. And you know what? He usually can get them up to a number where they say, yeah, I'll trade one of my eyes for a billion dollars. But then he says, let's simply ante. How much would you trade for both your eyes? Would you trade a billion dollars? Two billion? What about a hundred million? Or a hundred billion dollars? Would you trade that for both your eyes? I don't think anyone has ever taken him up on his offer. Why? Because your eyes, being able to see the world, is of incredible value. How much more valuable is the soul who sees through those eyes the life that takes in the beauty of the world around you? You're not going to give that up for any amount of money. Well, I say that, but people give it up all the time for a lot less. Mark chapter 10 records such a man. We see this exact situation. It's the parable, not the parable rather, it's the rich young ruler who approaches the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21 says, And Jesus looking at him and loved him, said, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. This is the free offer of the gospel, my friends, being held out to this man. But what does he do? Verse 22 of chapter 10 says, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This man said that he had kept all ten commandments since his youth. And the reality is he didn't even keep the very first one that the Lord Jesus Christ, that the God of the universe would be his God, that he would worship him, that his sole object of worship would be that. But you know what this man trades his soul for? All his money. We see that C.S. Lewis's warning there is a very real one. Prosperity does tend to knit our hearts to this world, and it convinces us to sell something way more precious in value than even both our eyes, both our ears, sense of touch, or anything else that we have in this world. Nothing else is more valuable, but this man gives it up for his money. Peter, in in response, Jesus starts teaching them about how difficult it is for a rich man to enter heaven. Verse 28, listen to what Peter says. Peter began to say to him, Jesus, see, I have left everything to follow you. I've given it up. I've made the trade. Jesus said to him, oh yes, you've suffered the loss of a lot of things. I'm going to reward that suffering. Your suffering has earned your place with God. Your suffering is something I'm going to look at and say, that's the reason why I'm going to have Peter as my disciple, because he sacrificed so much. That's not what Jesus says here, I'm sorry. 
Verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. You see the other part of this, it's worth it to suffer. The call to suffering is worth it because we're making a trade of something of infinitely more value. But the reality is is the trade we're making because of that value really isn't a trade at all. It's an investment. Trading this life for one of infinitely more value in the future you don't end up losing anything at all. Our sacrifice of ourselves, dying to ourselves, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says that we present our bodies as living sacrifices to our God. Out of all the, after all He's done for us, that we do that out of gratitude. That the call to suffer that Jesus says here is not a call that causes God to be our debtor. We don't suffer so that God will owe us something. Our suffering is like a fragrant offering that we present to our God out of gratitude for all that He has done for us. But it doesn't even end there. Verse 38 of Mark chapter 8 says, "'Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation,' Of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, and after it, it has come with power. You see, Jesus made a claim about himself just then, something that no one else could say that he's going to come with the glory of his Father, with the heavenly angels. This is something only God could say. He's coming on judgment day. It's a worthy trade because Jesus is the King of kings and he is able to honor all those who sacrifice so much to follow him. The trade is not just for our present life now for a future life later. We're changing, we're ch- exchanging present honor for future honor. We are, by the world, made to be, trying to be ashamed of the gospel. But we won't be ashamed because Jesus will not be ashamed of us at the end. And Jesus proves the worthiness of this cost by vindicating it, by verifying it. He shows that the payment will go through. Chapter 9, verse 1 is a difficult text to fully understand because he says that they will not taste death, that some will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There's a sense in which 
Jesus coming with his angels in the glory of his Father is something that's going to happen at the second coming, which many people have died since then. And at that day, it truly will be verified that the payment is that the check is cleared, for sure. But if we back up a little bit, at Pentecost, at least 3,000 people saw that Jesus was the King of Kings, pouring out His Spirit upon His church, showing that He had accomplished His work and that He's with His people, verifying that the payment went through. And if we back up even before that at the resurrection, Jesus Christ in raising from the dead, gave the people a taste of his kingdom power, which was verified with at least 500 witnesses, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. But I think here, the some standing here who will not taste death is what happens in the very next section. That the some of them who are standing there are Peter, James, and John who are about to witness a taste and a vision of Jesus' excellent worth, His majesty, His glory, the glory that He's going to have when He comes back at the second coming to judge the world. The cost of the call to suffer, suffer is thus verified, verified to be true. Peter remarks about this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths that we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. What do you think is going to be in verse 17? For when he received honor and glory from the Father, the voice born to him by the majestic glory said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is telling us here, he's not making this up. The call to suffer for Jesus Christ, the call to count the cost, the call to see that your soul is worth it, it's worth spending whatever price that it costs in order to save it, to follow Jesus Christ, it's worth it because we know the payment will go through. The person who's offering us this trade, he's able to keep his promises, I was told this morning that someone quoted uh, Matthew 13, verse 44, when Jesus tells the parable of a man who had found a plot of land with great treasure on it, and he was willing to sell all his possessions in order to get that land. Dear Christian, if you've heard who Jesus Christ is, and you've seen his glory, you know how valuable this possession is. You know it's worth whatever cost. You know it's worth even giving up your very life. None of us have had to give up our life. And as the book of Hebrews says, none of us have probably gotten even to the point of shedding our blood 
but we need to be convinced that he is worth it. And we need to be convinced that he's worth it right now. Because how else are we going to stand under persecution unless when we're in safety, we see that he's worth giving up our comforts? Jesus Christ is worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your holy word which, as Peter says, is a more sure word than our experiences, that your prophetic word is more fully confirmed, that we would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark places until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Lord, may your Father, may the Father, you, Convince us of this reality. Give us a glimpse that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Convince us, Lord. We haven't even looked at this morning what that suffering is. All we know is that it is worth it. And may we reckon that. May we seek to know Jesus Christ and who He is and the power of His resurrection day by day that we might come to the same conviction if we have not already. And Lord, we thank you that in trading this life, Lord, we haven't given up really anything at all. We have gained instead something of such infinite value that it makes all the present sufferings seem to be worth nothing because we have gained eternal life. We've gained riches beyond comprehension Oh, Lord, we are so thankful that you have given us Christ. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.